Chapter 13 of The Call of the Wildflower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. The Call of the Wildflower by Henry Salt. Chapter 13 The Sower of Tares. An enemy hath done this. The sowing of wildflowers is deprecated by some botanists presumably as an interference with natural processes, an unauthorized attempt to play providence in the vegetable kingdom. But the subject is one that seems to call for fuller discussion than it usually receives. We are told in the parable that the man who sowed tares among the wheat was an enemy, and certainly if there was an intention to injure the crop, the expression was not too strong. But I have sometimes wondered whether the reprehensible act may not have been that of some botanical enthusiast who, loving wildflowers, not wisely but too well, was trying to save from extinction some rare weed of the cornfields which was disappearing under improved methods of culture. That this way of augmenting the flora of a country is nowadays not uncommon may be guessed from the frequent occurrence in botanical works of the comment, probably planted. Only a few pages back, I referred to the case of a pond in Hertfordshire, now strongly held by a battalion of water-soldiers, the descendants of imported plants. There is evidence, too, that the practice has occasionally been indulged in by naturalists of great distinction, an amusing instance being that of the venerable and much-respected Gerard, whose description of the peony as growing wild near Gravesend drew from his editor Johnson the following remark. I have been told that our author himself planted the peony there, and afterwards seemed to find it there by accident and I do believe it was so, because none before or since have ever seen or heard of it growing wild in any part of this kingdom. Again, it is stated in Canon Vaughan's Wild Flowers of Selborne that Gilbert White himself was once guilty of this misdemeanor. He sowed not tares in wheat, but seeds of the grass of Parnassus in the Hampshire bogs, and sowed them, according to his own statement, unsuccessfully. It would appear, however, from what Canon Vaughan discovered, that White was more successful than he imagined. However that may be, the question that arises is whether a judicious extension of the range of wildflowers by the agency of man is really a thing to be censured. May not a flower-lover occasionally sow his wild oats? It must be admitted that the objections to such a practice are not retrospective, for if it be a misdemeanor, it is one that is condoned, perhaps hollowed, by time for as it is impossible to draw a strict line between flowers that were accidentally imported or escapes from ancient gardens and those that were planted deliberately we wisely ask no questions in the case of old established plants of foreign origin but receive them into our flora as aliens that have become naturalized and are honorably classed as denizens when they have once made good their tenure of the soil it seems to matter little by what means they arrived thus for example the starry trefoil which colonized the Shoreham Shingles over a century ago, having apparently come as a stowaway on board some foreign ship, was not only tolerated but highly regarded by English botanists, and its recent destruction is felt to be a national loss. Would it have detracted from its value if, as indeed may have happened, it had been purposely sown on the beach? On the contrary, it seems desirable that it should now be restored in that manner. Such planting, of course, if done at all, should be done circumspectly, and on a fixed principle, not as an amusement for irresponsible persons or children. I know a flower-lover who, in a district where the beautiful St. John's wort, the Tutson, 
was dwindling through depredations or through some unexplained malady, carefully restored the balance in a score or so of suitable spots, and surely such action was much to be commended. But it is not to be desired that everyone should be planting tutsin everywhere, nor is there any danger of such a fashion arising, for there is much less tendency to plant than to pluck, to create than to destroy, and for that reason it would be folly to reintroduce any rare plant like the lady's slipper, where the collector would quickly reap what the enthusiast has sown. Such was the objection, it seems to me, to a proposal made some years ago by Edward Carpenter and others, that the diminishing numbers of the rarer butterflies should be reinforced by breeding. One would not willingly repeat the comedy of the angling craze, which solemnly stocks rivers with fish in order to pull them out again for pastime. Nor, because some planting of wild flowers may be unobjectionable, does it follow that all such enterprises are deserving of praise. A recent announcement that the Lanberis side of Snowdon, a locality rich in British mountain flowers, is being sown by Kew experts with the seeds of a number of alpines from Switzerland, was likely to be more agreeable to rock gardeners than to mountain lovers, who have a regard for the distinctive character of Snowdon itself and of its native flora. A country which has allowed its finest mountain to be exploited for commercial purposes, as Snowdon has been, is perhaps hardly in a position to protest against a Welsh hillside being planted with alien Swiss flowers, and even with Chinese rhododendrons. But nevertheless, such schemes are thoroughly incongruous and barbaric. What sort of mountains do we desire to have? A piece of nature or a nursery garden? A Snowdon or a Snowdon come cue? Be it understood, then, that the sowing of tares is by no means recommended as a practice. All that is here urged is that a sweeping condemnation of it is not warranted by the facts. Inasmuch as circumstances, not dogma, must in each case decide whether it be blameworthy or harmless or beneficial. And apart from common sense, there is one natural safeguard which will prevent any undue growth of wildflowers, that is to say, the remarkable fastidiousness of the choicer plants in regard to soil and conditions. They will flourish where it suits them to flourish, not elsewhere. Certain auxiliaries, too, nature has in the rabbits, water voles, and other wild animals that are herbivorous in their tastes, for it is very interesting to observe how quickly the appearance of a strange plant will attract the attention of such gourmands. I was once the owner of a sloping meadow in which there were some springs, and, thinking it would be pleasant to have a water garden, I had a small pond made, into which I introduced some aquatic plants, and among them, most accommodating of all, the water violet, which grew lustily and sent up a number of its graceful stalks with whirls of pink blossoms. But just at that time a water vole took up his residence there, and developing a remarkable fondness for a new savor in his salads, quickly made havoc of my Hotonia palustris. The neighbors assured me I must trap him, but to treat a fellow vegetarian in that way was out of the question, especially as his confidence in me was so great that he would sit nibbling my favorite aquatic, which seemed also to be his favorite, while I stood within a few yards. It was clear that if the cult of the water violet involved the killing of the water vole, it had got to be abandoned. In this way, among others, does nature protect herself against an excessive interference on man's part with the distribution of wildflowers. End of chapter 13. Read by Olivia.